So a number of years ago, when I was a youth pastor, we had a young man in our, our ministry that was radically saved by the Lord Jesus. Now, I believe anybody that is saved is radically saved, and anybody that, that is born is born as a wretch in need of Christ. But this young man, you have to understand, was the wrong kid from the wrong family living in the wrong side of town. And so what he came to believe was that if somebody like him, if somebody like him could be saved by Jesus, if somebody like him could know God and be known by God and delight in God, if somebody like him was in the re- within the reach of the gospel, then anybody was in, within reach of the gospel. That if, if Jesus was concerned with him from his background and his family, if Jesus cared for him and was willing to take his place and endure his penalty for all of his sin, then for anyone who heard his name, for anyone that walked and had a breath in their lungs or a beat in their chest, they were within the reach and the scope of the same Jesus. And so the Lord began to work in his life and he was called into the ministry, and he, along with uh, a number of other just wonderful, godly young men, were part of an internship ministry that we were doing. And, 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 and this young man was particularly just an evangelist. I mean, like, the Lord just burdened his heart so that other people would hear the gospel and know the truth about Jesus. But, you know, one day he asked me a penetrating question. It was so simple, and yet it was so profound. One day he and I were, were sitting in my office and he's in the same chair he sat in every afternoon and he says, Cody, I have a question. I said, okay. He said, why doesn't our church double in size every year? I thought, well, this is an audacious young man now, isn't it? You know, here, here's another young preacher that that believes he's got it all figured out, you know, and, and I said, I'm, I'm not sure that I understand where you're coming from, so maybe, maybe help me out. And he said, well, if every person in the church would just reach one other person over the course of the year, then the church would double in size every year. And it seems to me, having read the Bible, that, that God would be pleased would be pleased to bring one person into each of our lives every year that we can reach with his gospel, that we can reach with the good news. He said, so, so it seems like that if each one would reach one every year, that eventually our church would transform our community. And even from there, it could go out. He said, so why doesn't our church double in size every year? And as I thought about the question, you know, I was arrested by the logic. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple that a young Christian, a young, energetic, zealous Christian, as he thought about it, he couldn't find an explanation as to why every Christian wasn't finding at least one other non-Christian to bring into the kingdom of God if they could have the same hope, the same joy, the same grace, the same mercy, the same forgiveness, the same abundant life that has been offered to each one of us. The truth is, is I think the Lord would be pleased. 
The Lord would be pleased if each of us lived our lives on mission. If each of us were, were committed and determined to offer hope to others the way that we have received hope. For some of us, the Lord might particularly have gifted us. And you may be able to bring in scores of people. For others of you, it is so unnatural. It has to be supernatural. But even you, the Lord, especially you, the Lord is able to work through in his own majestic and sovereign way to bring people into his kingdom. So this morning, I wonder, what would it take for you to share your faith with someone else? What would it take? What would God have to do in your life so that this week you would share your faith and sow the hope of the gospel into the life of a co-worker, or the life of a, of a spouse or a child or a grandchild? What would it take in your life? What would God have to do in your life so that this week you would begin to live on mission? Would it take a burning bush? Would it take, would it take a beam of light? from heaven? Would it take a, a, a message written in the clouds? Or will you walk in faith to the commandment and commission given to us by the Lord Jesus to go to all nations and make disciples? This morning, what would it take for each one to reach one? This morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we have what is really one of my very favorite passages in the entirety of the Bible. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the Lord Jesus talking with a woman who is the wrong woman at the wrong place at the wrong time from the wrong side of town. We're going to see Jesus talking with a lady who's just like the young man that I know, and we're going to see Jesus' method in reaching her with the gospel. So that by seeing how Jesus reaches her with the gospel, we can evaluate our own evangelism. So that by seeing how Jesus lives on mission himself as he walked through those three and a half years of ministry and called people into the kingdom of God, how he did it and how simple it was so that we might implement in our own lives and see new people come to know gospel hope. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 4, and when you're there, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's Word together? We're going to read the, uh, the first 26 verses together. God's Word says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So as we start in our text this morning, what it tells us is that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus was leaving Jerusalem and he was headed to Galilee or leaving Judea and headed to Galilee. And it says that for him to get to Galilee, that he had to go through Samaria. Now, the editor, uh, John, gives us some notes in there, doesn't he? He says, now, most of the time, Jews have, want to have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So this is a, he, he's letting us know that there's a strange occurrence that is taking place. See, the reason that Jews did not like Samaritans, and, and frankly, the feeling was likewise, the Samaritans did not like the Jews, is that during the exile, before the coming of Christ, before the coming of John the Baptist, in the exile, because of their unfaithfulness, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria. And many of the people of Jerusalem, many of the people of Israel, are taken out of Israel and disseminated among the, the Assyrian Empire. There were just a few Jews that were left behind. And then what Assyria did is they brought in all of these other people from all of these other conquered nations. And they brought them into Jerusalem where there is just a remnant left of the Israelites. Well, what happened is those who were left intermarried with those other Gentiles that were brought in. And so the Samaritans were born. They were considered to be half Jew but entirely unfaithful. They actually changed the word of God and would only endorse their own version of the first five books of, of, the, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. They rejected Jerusalem as being the center of the temple, the temple mount. Instead, they believed that the temple was to be on Mount Gerizim, the last place where the tabernacle was had. And in fact, they would work and conspire with enemy nations to go and attack Israel at their temple and to bring destruction to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Israelites would return favor and attack the, their own temple on Mount Gerizim until ultimately it was destroyed. And so they hate each other. 
They hate each other. They, they, they hate each other racially. They hate each other religiously. They hate each other ethnically. Every way that they could despise each other, every way that they could hate each other, the Jews and the Samaritans were at odds. And so what we see here is that Jesus says, but that he had to go through Samaria. And what's interesting about that is that the way that we might read it is that it's saying that there's no other way for Jesus to get where he's going. That there's no other way for Jesus to get from Judea to Galilee, so he had to go through Samaria. But that's not the case at all. In fact, there were three different roads to Samaria. And many, if not most Jews, would take the southern road and through the Transjordan to get to, to, get to Galilee, even though the road to Samaria was shorter because they didn't want to interact with the Samaritans. They believed that if you shared a cup with the Samaritan, you were unclean and unfit for worship. They believed that to talk and converse and to be friendly, to do business with the Samaritan, could render you unfit for worship in the temple, causing you to have to go through all of the cleaning rituals. And so to avoid the Samaritans and to avoid Samaria, they would walk out of their way through the Transjordan to make sure that they didn't go through the dreaded town of Samaria. But it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The, the places throughout the New Testament, places where we see that phrase had to, frequently respond to times in which the sovereign call of God compels one of his disciples, even his own son, to fulfill a divine appointment that God has set up. A, that when it says he had to go through Samaria, he didn't have to go through Samaria geographically. He had to go through Samaria because going through Samaria was the will of his father. And the son was compelled to obey and to live in perfect faithfulness and obedience to the will of his father. And so Jesus goes through Samaria because Jesus goes where God sends him to be. Even though a Jewish man wouldn't be comfortable there, even though it could bring reproach upon a, Jew, a Jewish man's faith, even though it could in the eyes of the religious elite render him unclean and unfit for worship, Jesus was to go to Samaria because God the Father was sending him to Samaria. See, what we find in Jesus and what we see in Jesus is that God-centered people are compelled to go where God is sending them to go. God-centered people are compelled to go where God is sending them to go. That it doesn't matter where you want to go. It doesn't matter where you're comfortable to go. It doesn't matter where you logically believe that you should go. That where God tells you to go, where God sends you to go, a God-centered man, a God-centered woman, a God-centered child just goes. They obey. They walk in faithfulness to the Father. The simplest observation that we can make about the evangelism of Jesus, the simplest observation that we can make from the life of Jesus in reaching women like the Samaritan woman is simply that he goes where God sends him to go and he goes to whom God sends him to go. That where God sends, to whom God sends, God's people must go. Now, for us, for us, I find the opposite to often be true. I find the opposite to be true. 
You know, the primary reason that I believe that our friends and our children and our grandchildren, our community, our co-workers, our teammates, our classmates, the primary reason that they are not drawn and attracted to the Christian faith I believe that the primary reason that they are not drawn to the Christian faith and attracted to the Christian faith and embracing the Christian faith, in fact, they are many forsaking the Christian faith, is that the Christian faith in in the Christians that they know and in the Christians that they live with doesn't appear to have much faith at all. That most Christians live according to the conventional wisdom of the world. Most Christians run their homes and run their families and run their businesses and run their finances and run their, run their calendars according to the conventional wisdom, according to what is rational, according to what is logical, according to what in the eyes of their friends and the eyes of their peers appears to be most conventional, most normal, most sensible. But brothers and sisters, it requires no faith No faith to do that which is conventional. It requires no faith to do that which is rational. It requires no faith to do that which everyone will agree with you. It requires no faith to go where everybody else is going and do what everybody else is doing. It requires no faith. What requires faith is when you move your family to the wrong side of town with the grandkids so that you can reach that side of town. It doesn't make sense in conventional wisdom. What 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 requires faith is when God calls you to pick up your life and move to Salt Lake and help plant Life Point Church with your own body and your own family, even though it's going to take you away from family Christmases. It's going to take you out of everything that is sensible, everything that is conventional, everything that is normal. What requires faith is when God calls for you to adopt and you don't know how you're going to pay for it. You don't know how you're going to acclimate this little baby into your house, but God has called you. And though it's not conventional and though it is scary, even terrifying, you will obey the Lord. You will do what the Lord has called you to do. You will go where the Lord has called you to go simply because God has said it. Because God has said it. Brothers and sisters, that is faith. That is what it means to walk against the current. It doesn't mean that you're trying to knock everybody else out. It means that you're trying to run after Jesus with everything that you are and everything that you've got. You give him all of your heart for all of your life so that he can be the king, so that he is the ruler, so that he is the guy. So I ask you, in your life, in your life right now, is everything that you do and everything that you buy And everywhere that you go, and everybody that you spend time with, is it all defined by conventional wisdom? Is it all defined by conventional wisdom? If if someone were to look from the outside looking in, and they were to have you right beside your unchurched, unbelieving neighbor, and they never heard you speak, they only watched your life and observed, would they be able to tell a difference in your family, in your life, in your love, in your actions, in your obedience from everybody else on your street and everybody else in your neighborhood? Brothers and sisters, do you look at the hundreds that are here this morning? There's at least two, three hundred people here. 
Don't you think that from among us, God would call us out to do some extraordinary things in his way, not because we are talented, not because we have ability, not because it is sensible, not because we are prime candidates, but because he is almighty God and he works through me and you for the advancement of his kingdom to reach our world and reach our loved ones and reach the next generation of a Christian faith that is filled with faith and faithfulness is a Christian faith that we will be sure to pass on to the next generation. It is a Christian faith that we will be sure to use to transform what God is wanting to do in the community of White Plains, Cleveland County, and Calhoun County. How are you? How is your family taking part? The next thing that we see is not only was, was this woman, in the, was Jesus in the wrong place, but that he was there at the wrong time with the wrong woman. It says in our text that, that it was the sixth hour. That it was the sixth hour. Now, the way that they told time is they started at 6 a.m. and then they counted up from there. So what we're, we're there and it's high noon. It's right in the middle of the day. Now, I don't know if you know a ton about the Middle East. I don't consider myself an expert on the Middle East, but I've seen pictures. And what I can tell about the Middle East is that it's hot there. It's hot there. And so what was conventional, what was normal, is in that day, all of the women would get up first thing in the morning or maybe late in the evening, and they would travel together in groups. They would travel together in groups. They would talk about life and, and talk about family and talk about all those things, and they would go and they would get their daily water from the well. They traveled in groups because it was safer. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be robbed. They wouldn't be raped. They wouldn't encounter all of the dangers that, could, that one could encounter as a, as a young lady walking through the, the lonely streets by themselves. But they, they went instead in groups, and they went when it was cooler in the beginning of the day, maybe even at the end of the day, but certainly never in the middle of the day. Well, what do we see with this lady? What we see with this lady is that this lady is there and she's at the well and she's there by herself in the middle of the day. And so this is telling us something. John, John is teaching us something. He's, he's explaining to us something about this woman's condition. What we see by the time that she's there and the fact that she's there all alone is that this is a woman with skeletons in her closet. This is a woman with skeletons in her closet. This is a woman that would go to the well all alone in the wrong time of day because she wasn't welcomed by everybody else. And if she did go with, with everyone else, they were going to be looking down their noses at her. They were going to be keeping their daughters and sons away from her. What's apparent when we see when she's there and, and the fact that she's there by herself is that this is a woman that is lonely. This is a woman that's got a story. This is a woman that has a past. And Jesus speaks to her. He says, can I have some water? I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? And what does it say? It says that she's taken aback, doesn't it? She's surprised. She's surprised that Jesus would talk to her. How is it that you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? You see, in Jesus' day, it was socially taboo for a man to talk in public with a woman. A, a husband would not even speak in public with his own wife. 
She would walk behind him to avoid anything that could be even the appearance of something that was inappropriate. And then you have the fact that this is not just a woman and a man talking to a woman. This is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Within one generation of the life of Jesus, the Jews made it so that it would be that, that Samaritan women were considered to be in a time of perpetual uncleanliness. So that anything that you touch, that they touch. Anything, anywhere that you go, that they are. That if you come into contact with them, you were defiled by them. You were made impure by them. You were made unclean by them. But you know, you remember what we saw with Jesus and Matthew? When Jesus goes to the tax booth and he, and he invites Matthew to follow him, what's the next place that Jesus goes? Jesus goes to Matthew's house, a house filled with publicans and tax collectors, with prostitutes and harlots. And it causes all the community to say, this is socially unacceptable for a teacher of the law, for a rabbi to be hanging out with riffraff like this. How can such a man dine with sinners like that? And Jesus said, I did not come for the well, for they need no physician, but I came for the sick. What do we see here? What do we see here? Jesus is there. He doesn't have a bucket to drop into the hundred foot well. Not only is he talking to her, Jesus is offering to share a bucket with her, to share water with her, to use her bucket and for her to draw water and that he would willingly and gladfully drink from the bucket that she offers to him. So again, Jesus is here and he's dining with sinners, fellowshipping with sinners because Jesus was not made impure. What we will see is that Jesus takes those who are impure and when they touch him, he is not defiled. They are made well. They are made well. And so there's a contrast. There's a contrast between us and Jesus that comes out here. You see, what we see in Jesus as he dines with sinners, as he dines with Matthew, as he shares, a, as he wants to share a drink of water with this Samaritan woman, what we see is that Jesus is not concerned with the approval of men, he is concerned with the souls of men. That Jesus does not concern himself with the approval of men, but rather Jesus is concerned with the souls of men. What Jesus was doing was socially taboo. What Jesus was doing was socially unacceptable. In the eyes of the religious leaders, as word would spread about this, and what we see in the Samaritan woman, and she goes and she spreads it quickly. As word goes and it spreads that he is there and he's talking with the Samaritan, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. Not just talking with her, but wanting to share a drink of water from her bucket. What we see is that Jesus does not concern himself with the approval of the crowds. Jesus does not concern himself with being found acceptable within social protocols. No, rather, Jesus is concerned only with the mission of his Father to bring sinners into the kingdom of God so that those who are unwell might be well, so that those who are impure might be made pure, for those who are sinners and wicked might be called righteous in the eyes of the Lord and to be brought in to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. We're not like that, are we? We're not like that. Most of us spend our entire lives just trying to be normal just trying to be normal. We spend our lives just trying to be thought of highly by other people, just being approved in the way that we parent our kids. 
being approved in the way that we go and, and build our homes, in the way that we go and, and go on our vacations, in the way that we do our career and, and advance through our ambitions. We want to go and live on the street where all the houses are basically the same and all the families look basically the same. But brothers and sisters, what we have to realize is that which is normal is destructive. That which is normal is misery and brokenness in this world. But because of our infatuation with the approval of man, because we need validation from men, because we need security found in the approval of men, we are not reaching them. We are not reaching them. Why would you go to somebody who lives just like you and looks just like you and talks just like you and seems to believe just like you for an answer that you don't have? It appears that they have the same answers that you have. But, but brothers and sisters, if we will follow in the ways of Christ, if we will walk in the footsteps of Jesus, then what we will say is we will reject social protocols. We will reject social acceptance. We will reject the validation of men that we might reach men and love men and show them gospel kindness and gospel mercy and gospel grace. And it may mean that we end up talking to the wrong woman at the wrong place at the wrong time. But by God's grace, if we're doing that and bringing her into the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. See, what Jesus recognized in this woman is Jesus recognized that she was thirsty. He recognized that she was thirsty. He goes and, and sure, he asks her for a drink. He asks, he asks her for a drink of water. But he does so because he recognizes the thirst in her own life. She's there and he says, if you just come and you would ask me for a drink, if you would, if you would talk about how thirsty you are, if you would talk about how much you hate looking at the snares and the looks of those other women, if you would talk about all the skeletons in your closet, if you would come to me, I would give you a drink of water that would satisfy you forever. In fact, I wouldn't give you a drink of water. I would get a, give you a spring. I would give you a fount through the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. That will be an outpouring of water to quench your thirst and to satisfy your soul forever. To satisfy your insecurity. To satisfy your loneliness. To satisfy your rejection. To cure the wounds that are in your soul. So what we see Jesus doing as he talks to her about thirst, as we see Jesus getting to this woman's brokenness, getting to her brokenness. See, that well, it represented everything that was wrong in her life. It represented everything that had went wrong. The fact that she can't be there and socialize like all the other moms and all the other wives, the same ways that all of them do. The fact that she is there when she is there. Every day she makes that trip, every day she makes that journey, she is reminded again and again that she has failed at life. So every long Lonely trip up that dusty road is a journey to the same well that is the same mirror that is reflecting back to her her own failure, her own misery. 
her own brokenness. And so she looks to Jesus. She says, sir, sir, give me this water. If you've got a water that's going to allow me to stop coming to this well every day, if you've got a water that's going to allow me to stop having to face this lonely journey every day, if you've got a water like that, I want the water. Give me the water. Let me have it so I don't have to keep coming here. Jesus uses that well. He uses her thirst, and he uses it to get into the window of her heart through her own brokenness. You see, brokenness is the experience that all of us have in in common, but none of us want. Brokenness is the experience that all of us have in common, but none of us want. But brokenness is that which is the exact crosshairs of the gospel itself. Because brokenness is used by God to remind us, often painfully so, that there is a better plan and there is a better design and we were intended for something far greater than what we have now. Brokenness is the kind hammer of God used to tenderize our hearts so that we might heed and hear His gentle call. See, if we want to reach our community, you want, to, you want to reach your children. You want to reach your mom or your dad. You want to reach that guy at work. You want to reach that girl in the break room. You want to reach your teammate and your classmate. You can't just come in there spitting out truth. You can't just come in there telling them all of these things. You've got to get into the heart, man. You've got to get into the heart. And the way to the heart is down the pathway of brokenness. I wonder if the reason that we don't share and the reason that others don't want to listen when we do share is that typically we come across as self-assured Christians that know what everybody else doesn't know, that live a life that is better than everybody else lives, and we are telling them the way that they should be rather than one broken, wretched sinner that has come into the kingdom of God by grace and mercy and kindness and the gospel, coming to another wretched sinner who just needs the same light, who just needs the same hope, who just needs the same answer for life's brokenness and bitterness and misery. You see, if you think you have to have a sales pitch that is brilliant, you're not going to share because none of us have that. None of us have that. None of us are that smooth. And we know that dealing with other people, it's just not that clean. It's just not that neat. So if we think we have to have a polished sales pitch so that everybody that hears the gospel will hear what we have to say and be so wooed and overwhelmed by the eloquence of our words, then we're not going to share. But if, like Paul, we say that all we have is the foolishness of the cross... If like Paul, we say that all we have is the foolishness of the gospel that has changed me, that has given me hope, that has given me light in my darkness, that has delivered me from my wickedness and my marriage and all the things that I have faced, if we come, in other words, from our place of brokenness and talk about the brokenness in our lives and we go into their place of brokenness and answer the brokenness in their lives, then we can show them how Jesus has saved us and Jesus has helped 
us. And just as Jesus can save us, and just as Jesus can help us, he can save them, and he can help them. We are broken. They are broken. But Jesus makes us whole. We are thirsty, but he, he has a fount of living water that he can place in the heart of the most wretched man or wretched woman so that it becomes a spring of them where they will never thirst again. Talk to them about your brokenness, church. Talk to them about your, your brokenness. The world doesn't need another self-assured church. The world doesn't need more self-assured Christians. The world needs people of brokenness and humility to come to them in joy and come to them and to be real and authentic. Talk about your messy marriage. Talk about the brokenness in your health. Talk about the things that you faced in your family. Talk about the issues that you faced with your children. Identify with them. Be real with them. And then show them how Jesus gets you through. How Jesus gets you through. And brothers and sisters, if each one does that, then each one can reach one. Because it is the path of brokenness that opens the gateway to the heart. Brokenness is the kind hammer of God used to tenderize the heart so they can hear his gospel plea, so they can want and desire and crave the grace that he offers us in living water. The next thing that Jesus says is something that in our day would be viewed by many as being intolerant. Something that would be viewed by by many in our day as being unloving. Jesus looks to this woman and he says, Okay, you want living water? Go and get your husband. I want to tell him about it too. And you can imagine in this moment, she believes that she has found a man that is different. She believes that she has found one that has profound insight from God, so much so that she says, I can see that you're a prophet. She, everything about Jesus' body language has communicated to her that he is willing to listen to her and he is willing to talk to her and he is willing to love her. And then, then he, he presses on her most tender bruise. Then he punctures through her most gaping wound. Go and get me your husband. She looks down and she says, I'm not married. I'm not married. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know, I know. You're not just unmarried. You've been married five times before. You're five husbands deep, and right now you're cohabitating with a man that is not your husband. And you can imagine how this would arrest her. This would arrest her. You see, before a man or a woman can be delivered from their sin, they have to face it. They have to face it. Before you can know that you need a kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving Savior, you have to look, your most heinous sins, your darkest, uh, your darkest skeletons, you have to look them right in the eye and you have to face them and you have to know that they are insurmountable for you, that it is a debt that you cannot overcome, that it is a, that it is a gap that you cannot jump across, that there is a, a fracture between you and God that you can't make better. But in fact, you don't deserve life. 
You don't deserve grace. You don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve mercy. You deserve condemnation. You deserve hell and the full wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not intolerance. This is not unkind. This is compassion. This is compassion. He is opening her eyes. He is not letting her forget it this time. He's not letting her just blow through it again this time. No, this time she must face it so that he can overcome it, so that he will overcome it. But you know, there's an, there's an important order here, isn't there? There's an important order here. I think for a long time in the Baptist church, we just dove into that one. We just dove into the confrontation of sin. We just dove into all of the world, and we do it on social media, we do it on Twitter, we do it at the break room, we do it with our friends, we do it with, with all the people in our family. We, we dive in and we launch into the confrontation of sin. And brothers and sisters, they have to own their sin. They have to face it. But you notice that Jesus doesn't start there? And his relationship with this Samaritan woman, in this conversation with this Samaritan woman, he starts with kindness, doesn't he? He starts with kindness. He goes and he, he treats her with terms of respect. He speaks to her in a respectful way. In fact, it's remarkable that he speaks to her at all, we see. And yet he comes to her and he speaks to her with such kindness that she's taken back from it. Then Jesus not only treats her well, he treats her with kindness and with love and with gentleness, but then Jesus goes and he offers her good news first. Good news first, I have living water for you. You don't have to keep coming here. You don't have to keep living like this. You don't have to keep facing this. I have good news. I can place in you a fount of living water. He says, I have hope. I have good news. I know the answer to all of your brokenness. Then, then he confronts her in her sin. Brothers and sisters, before we can reach our friends, before we can reach our siblings, before we can reach our classmates, we have to love them. We have to be kind with them. We have to graciously share the message of grace. And we don't always do that well in the church. We have to actually make the good news sound like good news. Why in the world would the world want to come and be drawn to a message that seems more oppressive than it does liberating? The good news is good news, and it should sound like good news from the mouths of those who preach it. No, we can't avoid sin. Sin must be faced. It must be turned from. It must be repented of. It must be obvious and apparent. But let us go to them in grace. Let us go to them with the same gentle call that the Holy Spirit came to us through the same gentle message. Let us be messengers of grace with the message of grace. You know, there's, some, there's a remarkable interplay that happens in the passage. It says it, it, that Jesus thirsts and that he's tired. Think about that. Jesus is the one by whom Niagara Falls got the force of her waters. Jesus is the one that sent the Amazon River flowing into the Atlantic. Jesus is the one that it says can hold the oceans, the Pacific, the Atlantic, in the hollows of his hand. 
He says, I'm thirsty. I need a drink of water from the well. What a glimpse of the humanity of Christ. That Jesus knows our brokenness in every way that we know that know it. That Jesus, in every way that he could be a man, he was a man, and he is a man. But then do you see what he does? He quotes back to this woman her entire history. He quotes back to this woman everything about her, all of the secrets, even though from her perspective and apparently from his and the disciples too, she is a perfect stranger. And so having be, being a man and being thirsty and being tired, he shows himself not to just be entirely man, but to be entirely God with omniscience and knowledge that no man or woman can have of another. You see... He had to be fully man so that he could take our place. So that he could die our death. So that he could pay our penalty and defeat sin's power in our lives. But he had to be fully God so that he could bear the weight of the world's sin and pay off an infinite debt and an infinite offense before an infinite God. He had to be fully God to go into the grave but not to stay in the grave but to be raised from the dead so that we could walk in his victory and because he is fully man and he is fully God and he is our substitute he is the true gateway to worship worship that is in spirit worship that starts inwardly with the flow of living water and pours outwardly worship that is centered upon truth upon the word who became flesh and dwelt among us the truth incarnate Christ himself and this morning there are somebody here and you think you're in too deep this morning you're going to leave and you're going to go back and you receive your livelihood from ways that are sinful you're going to go to an affair that you already have planned and you already have intends to go to you're going to go back to your computer and the pornography that you find there you're going to go back to your friends that you know are going to bring you to the depths of your own depravity, or you're going to look at your friends, you're going to look at your family, you're going to look at your classmates, and you're going to think they're too far gone, they're too in too deep. But do you see what happens in verse 26? Do you see what happens in verse 26? This woman says, I know the Christ is coming. I know the Christ is coming. And he will tell us all of this. And Jesus looks to her, entirely man, entirely God, the representative of God, of man before God, and God before man. And he says this, I am he. Now do you understand, this is the first time in the Gospels that he has told anybody that he is the Messiah? He is first time that he has told anybody that he is the Messiah. Did he tell the priests? Did he tell the Pharisees? Did he even tell his own disciples? No, brothers and sisters. He told a Samaritan harlot. He told a woman who was promiscuous and sinful, who was on the outskirts of town. The wrong woman at the wrong place at the wrong time talking to the right Savior. She wasn't in too deep and you aren't in too deep and your neighbors aren't in too deep and your classmates aren't in too deep and your teammates aren't in too deep and your children aren't in too deep and your mama ain't in too deep. Jesus is the Savior. He is the right Savior for the wrong man and the wrong woman every single time. Brothers and sisters, will we go with the message of the right Savior to the community as He has sent us. Let's pray together.